Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi, a sophomore at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, and also one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, the author of The Watergate Girl and an MSNBC legal analyst and the wearer of hashtag Jill's pins. Today's pin is a symbol of justice, or in the case of the book we're going to talk about today, Injustice. I've lived through many attorneys general, and I have never seen one who violated Department of Justice policies, norms, and rules as openly and recklessly as Bill Barr has. From his audition memo critiquing then-Special Counsel Mueller's investigation into election interference uh, and acting as the president's most ardent defender at many moments, Bill Barr has undermined the core mission of the Department of Justice fair and impartial justice under law. As a result, it will take many years before the DOJ can regain the trust and confidence of the American people. Our guest today is Ellie Honig, the author of a brand new best-selling book that details the corruption of the man who Jill just described, Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. It's a book that all generations will appreciate, walking through not only what standards and ethics lawyers must follow, but also the extent to which Bill Barr shattered legal standards and ethics. We look forward to discussing this book and what Attorney General Garland can and must do to repair the Department of Justice with Ellie today. Um, Ellie is currently a senior legal analyst at CNN, executive director of the Rutgers Institute for Secure Communication at Rutgers University, and special counsel at Lowenstein and Sandler, working with partners in the white-collar criminal defense practice as a key advisor on investigations and trial strategy. Before his current positions, Ellie served as director of the Department of Law and Public Safety, New Jersey Division of Criminal Justice, and worked for eight years as assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, where he successfully prosecuted more than 100 members and associates of the mafia. Thank you so much for joining us, Ellie. Thanks for having me, Victor and Jill. It's a pleasure to be both of you. I love the show. I love love what you've done with it. Am I your first, second time guest, or have have you had others? Um, I think we had at least. I think we had Katie Griffin twice, and okay. I'm not sure, but you may be. Yeah, um, but so you're not our very first. But we're glad to have not, you. Not back. that I'm over competitive, but. <laughs> Okay. Do you want to be our first to come back a third time? Well, that's that's my goal now. Yes. Okay. We'll, we'll do this. We'll knock this out of the park, and then then we'll work on number three. Okay. <laughs> excellent. Thank you. So, um, you know, you and I are different networks, but we both share a love and an appreciation for the Department of Justice, and um, we both served there, and we both understood immediately how Bill Barr's actions were a stark departure from anything that we had seen in the past. 
Um, we used our experience to provide commentary on why the public should be concerned, uh, but we differed on whether Barr was an acceptable replacement attorney general. I said he was unqualified due to his audition memo, but you said, and I'm quoting from your book, uh, which was quoting you from your CNN <laughs> appearance, that what you want is somebody who's qualified, who's serious, and who's respected. And by all accounts, William Barr is all of those. And that's the quote. Uh, obviously, you changed your mind, and Victor is yeah. going to explore that change with you. But in writing your book, um, you've shown why I was right and have given a marvelous summation of the case against Bill Barr and his tenure as Trump's attorney general. Based on um, the extensive reporting of his wrongdoings in office, um, you really gave what I considered a great closing argument against his tenure as attorney general. And um, I, I'm wondering how, in writing your book, though, you decided what wrongdoings of his that you would include uh, and which ones you might leave out because there are so many. Um, and I'm wondering if in writing the book, you discovered anything that hadn't previously been reported because what, what your book primarily is, is yeah. a summation of what the reporting was that was happening real time. So is there anything that you found that you'd like to share now? Sure, sure. So a couple of things. First of all, I was going to correct you when you said that you and I both immediately recognized the threat of Bill Barr because I didn't. Um, and I quote myself in the book on purpose uh, from the very first day his name was announced where I said he seems serious and he seems like a good pick. I will say, I guess, somewhat in my and I quote several other people who had been critical of the Trump administration who initially lauded him as a good pick. When I saw the audition memo it was a few hours after that. This is like the name came over the wires. And then I started to say, oh, hold up. And I very quickly, the next day or two, wrote a piece for CNN saying, we could have a problem here. But I did quote myself because I wanted to point out, I didn't have it in for this guy. I, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I was willing to do that and then some. And I thought it was important to sort of put that in there. And a lot of people, I think, felt the same way. I quote Ben Wittes. I quote James Comey. I quote um, a couple other sort of well-known commentators who initially said, good pick. And by the end, we're saying, one of them said, consider me burned. Um, on the question you raised, Jill, there's, there's a couple of things. What I try to do, what I do in the book is I use my own experience as an SDNY prosecutor. And Jill, you've obviously had uh, historically important uh, experiences of your own to draw out what I call the prosecutor's code, the unwritten rules, the principles, ideals, norms that you can only understand by doing and by learning that Bill Barr never did because he was never a real prosecutor, even though he's been AG twice. Um, and I try to draw, put my experience and the lessons I learned next to Bill Barr's abuses. The biggest thing that I, I guess we found in, in doing this book, you know, you asked how did I decide what to put in and what to leave out. Um, it was hard and, and there's plenty in there. There's a handful of things that have actually come out only since the book went to the printers a couple of months ago. Um, and I've frantically gotten in touch with HarperCollins, my publisher, and said, I got to add this. And they said, it's printed, but you can throw it into the, um, into the paperback in a few months. Um, but the fact that we keep learning more about Bill Barr's corruption, I think, says something uh, important. Um, here's what, what I found that really struck me the most that I did not expect to find that, and I don't think the public knows. 
Bill Barr, I think we're all well familiar with the fact that he lied to us many times over, that he played politics, that he's a legal extremist, right? A federalist society, unitary executive, whatever you want to call it. What really sort of caught my attention and what I found to be stunning is that the man is a religious extremist as well. And I don't mean in his personal capacity. You can do whatever you want religiously in your personal capacity. Um, that's that's wonderful. The problem is Bill Barr viewed himself in the attorney general's job as a really a culture warrior. And we found things that Bill Barr had written and said publicly back in the 90s, so 30 years ago, probably before you were born, Victor, um, where he talks about how, and I quote, God's law must be the supreme law of the land. And another, this is a paraphrase, Judeo-Christian religious norms are the only way to organize civil society. And he rails against exact quotes here. He rails against, quote, the homosexual agenda or movement. And he rails against militant secularists. And he said, these are the these are the people, these are the movements that are driving our society apart. And so I think Bill Barr really saw it as his mission as attorney general to, and he often put it in these warlike phrases that what will, what's our strategy as the church for retaking the hill and retaking preeminence in, in public life. And so I think that explains a lot of the big question around Barr is why? Why would he do this? And I thought it, I was shocked when I found this, and we lay it out in the book. Mm -hmm. And did you talk to Barr at all in writing this hmm. book or interview him at any point? I wish. Um, I've officially offered twice, and neither Barr nor his people, I guess it's... I guess it's not accurate to say they rejected. I say in the book they didn't even respond either time. But, I, but you know, like a good lawyer, like a good prosecutor, I gave full disclosure. I said this is a very critical – it's called a hatchet man. I mean this is a very critical look at the attorney general. But I would be happy, more than happy, to interview with him. I said I'll come down to D.C. I'll meet him face to face. Um, in fact, I said if he's going to do it, I insist that it be face to face because I think it's much harder to wiggle and dissemble – face-to-face -face than it is over Zoom or a phone call. And they didn't respond either time. But he knows, he knows about this book. Look, Bill Barr, one of the, Bill Barr is, an, is very conscientious about his own image. He tries to play like this sort of elderly guy and what do I know and I don't care and I'm, I'm not into, he's very image conscious. He gives a lot of interviews, some on the record, some not. Um, and they always make him look like the superhero. He knows about my book. He's not happy about my book. He's writing his own book that comes out next year. I'm sure it'll be fantastic. I, you know, buy his book, buy my book and make your own decision. Speaking, since you mentioned his title, uh, I wasn't yeah. going to ask you about this, but um, how did you come to that title and what did you mean to convey by Hatchet Man? <laughs> it's an aggressive, it's an aggressive title. I, I, I concede that. I actually came up, this is funny. I'll give you a little bit of inside baseball here for how the publishing world works because Jill, you've written a book or maybe multiple books. I have your book right over in my living room. Uh, Victor, you'll write a few in your, in your day. Um, we initially batted around a couple, I'll even tell you guys, my publisher, my editor first said, let's call it the enforcer. And I said, no, that's that's complimentary. If you wrote a book about my time as a prosecutor and called it The Enforcer, I'd say, that's great. Then I said, I want to call it Injustice because it's, right, he, he, he committed many injustices and it's like a pun because I take you inside the Department of Justice with my backroom, you know, SDNY war stories. And he said, no, that kind of title's sort of vague and 
it doesn't I've done other books with names like Justice E this and you know that kind of thing. Um, and then I just wrote out, I said, well, how about any of these? And I think I must have written out four or five or six. And one of them was Hatchet Man. And he just said, that's it. We're done. That's it right there. Um, and a Hatchet Man is somebody who's willing to do anything, anything it takes to protect the boss, to protect the agenda. Um, you know, it, it's a bit hyperbolic. I don't assert, assert that he committed murders or anything like that, but he was absolutely willing to destroy all of the norms and principles that DOJ is founded on. So I, I think that's a deserved title. It's funny because the pin I'm wearing today, and you may know I'm known for hashtag oh, sure. pins, is um, to see it closer. a, a t- tarot card of the symbol for justice. And I ah. sent it to Victor this morning saying, I'm going to wear this pin for parentheses, I N parentheses, justice for injustice, because that seems <laughs> to be. I am honored that my book, I will say, has something to do with one of your pin selections. That is, uh, <laughs> that is an honor. <laughs> well, my pin selection has something to do with your book and you're being our guest. That's why it was. Right, um, right, right. <laughs> so, Victor, why don't you go ahead? You know, I, I loved living through, I, like, I felt like I was vicariously living through your um, Twitter feed and, and your time <laughs> publishing the book because you, you kept on posting like what it was like recording the audio book and um, yeah. what the writing process was like. So I really enjoyed following along the um, Twitter. Um, but let's talk maybe more about Bill Barr and your, your opinion of his experience. Um, your book repeatedly stresses what you consider um, his inadequate experience to be the attorney general because he wasn't um, the criminal trial prosecutor, uh, but he previously served as deputy assistant director of legal policy for President Reagan, um, assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel, um, deputy attorney general and attorney general under President George H.W. Bush. And then he's also supervised litigation and argued in federal appellate courts as um, corporate general counsels for GTE, which I think is now known as um, Verizon. Um, So I think at first one might think that he is qualified to be Trump's AG. Um, And in fact, you know, as you said before, you endorse his nomination. Um, So I guess why do you think now um, only a former prosecutor is qualified to be AG? And what about his previous background might have been concerning? Yeah, so that's a great question, Victor. And I want to make this clear because I think a couple of reviews that I saw have have not understood this, and and I guess that's my fault as the writer of the book. I don't argue that it's a straight litmus test, that if you've not been a line-level prosecutor like I was, like Jill was, trying cases in court, I don't argue that if you've never been a line-level prosecutor, you cannot be a good AG, and I don't argue that if you have been a line-level prosecutor, you will be a good AG. We have plenty of counterexamples both ways. Edward Levy, who's one of the most revered attorneys general, was never a line prosecutor. However, I think clearly that if you've not been a line prosecutor, and for all the resume items that Bill Barr has, I don't – look, the guy's got a, a sterling resume. He's one of two people in U.S. history to be attorney general twice, plus all the other positions you just listed, Victor. I say, look, no doubt the guy's got a briefcase full of impressive credentials, but he's never lived the prosecutorial frontline experience that I lived. And as a result of that – He didn't either know slash understand or care about all those hard-won lessons that you never lie, you never fudge the truth, you don't cut the knees out from your colleagues. If there's a bad fact, you deal with it, you embrace it, you put it out there, but you don't lie about it. You never play politics. 
all of these principles that get driven home to you. If you have any interest in a case, if you've expressed an opinion on a case, you're out, right? All of these principles meant nothing to Bill Barr. And someone asked me, and it was, it almost took me back because it was, it was such a straightforward, simple, in a good way question. I think it was Mika Brzezinski actually on Morning Joe said, do you argue that he had personality flaws? And I said, I thought about it for a second. I said, yes, absolutely. I absolutely do. I think a liar it has personality flaws, and somebody who's willing to twist the law and the facts to meet a predetermined end does have personality flaws. So he was handicapped to an extent by his lack of experience. People can overcome that. People have overcome that. But another problem with Bill Barr is the people he surrounded himself with, his really top three criminal side folks, his deputy attorney general, his associate attorney general, his head of the criminal division, for the most, you know, he had various people in those roles, but the bulk of his time there also had no prosecutorial firsthand experience. And again, that's in contrast to his, pre certainly Barr's predecessors and successor as attorney general all had significant prosecutorial experience. And those who didn't at least were humble enough to know, well, I better surround myself with people who do understand this. So um, I think that's an important part of the story here, his lack of prosecutorial experience. And I think it spoke to a certain level of arrogance and disrespect that he showed towards the people on the line, which we can get into. Um, but I don't think it necessarily tells the full story, but I think it's, an, it's a necessary starting point. I really enjoyed just kind of reading the back and forth between the prosecutor's code and then also kind of Bill Barr's examples of wrongdoing. And I'm wondering if you can talk more about that and I guess yep. why you chose to structure your book in the way kind of flipping between the two um, and describing and trying to, I guess, highlight Bill Barr's wrongdoing. Yeah, part, part of it is I think it's just entertaining. I think people love those behind-the-scenes stories. What's it like in the trial room when you're waiting for a verdict, right? What's it, what's it like when you have a witness who's you remember the scene in the book, too terrified to take the stand. He's crying and, and the judge is waiting for him and the jury's waiting for him, right? I think people like that. Um, some of me actually did want to appeal to, I guess, young folks like yourself, Victor. And I've heard one of the most common pieces of feedback I've gotten, or now I want to go to law school, now I want to be a prosecutor, which is, or a defense lawyer, or a judge, which is, which nothing makes me happier than hearing that. Um, entertainment value aside, I thought it was a really effective way to show what these principles mean, to take them beyond just the bumper sticker, right? To, to, to show that it's easy to just say, um, let, let me, I'll give an example from the book. It's easy to just say that when you've done something wrong or you have a fact that you don't like, you should deal with it. You should put it out there and deal with it, not try to hide it or bury it or spin it. Okay. But I tell the story about the time when I was on trial and my trial partner did something inappropriate and I don't want to give too much away. And he got yelled at, but the trial judge sort of made the best of it. And then it comes up for appeal. I argued the appeal happened to be in front of then judge, now justice, Sonia Sotomayor. And um, she bites my head off appropriately and says, was that you who did that at trial? And I say, no, Your Honor, it was my trial partner. And I take 100% responsibility for everything that he, that both of us did throughout that trial. And it was wrong. And let me, I'll, I'll, t I'll gladly talk about why it was wrong, and I will argue to you here on the Court of Appeals why it should not result in a reversal. It wasn't bad enough, and she, she and the panel ultimately agreed. Funny story, actually, ran it, not ran into, but spoke with her at an event fairly recently, and she said, I heard I'm in your book, and I said, yeah, and she said, what, um, what is it? And I told her a quick 
version of that story. And she said, that sounds right. (laughs) That she was, you know, she was not pleased with what happened. Um, But uh, anyway, but I think telling specific stories like that really helped to illustrate the principles that Bill Barr violated. And and if we can talk more about some of the things he violated, or just as least reference them, um, again, I'm glad that you clarified that you weren't trying to say that only a former federal criminal prosecutor could, because I can see, um, I mean, it's very easy to read your book as that's the only qualification that matters. And yeah. uh, I, I certainly wouldn't agree with that. And being from Illinois, being sure. from Chicago, uh, Edward Levy would certainly be proof of, of, of that. Um, yeah. And But your last story also reminded me of the first time I argued in the Second Circuit, um, I was from the Department of Justice in Washington, from the organized crime section, and followed the Department of Justice rules for writing a brief. And I got reamed for not using the Southern District of New York's rules. And the court actually said, we will not consider the facts put forth in your appendix because it's not in the Southern District of New York format. And so I had to argue without any reliance at the last minute on anything in my, oh my appendix. Goodness. So you can imagine how horrible that was. I did think heaven. That's a great geez. story. I, and, and we in the SDNY are nothing if not um, yes. confident in doing things our <laughs> exactly. way. Let's put it that well, way. I did, and I do, I do put some SDNY stuff yeah. in the book. And I am, I think, self-aware of the confidence bordering on maybe tipping over to arrogance that comes along with all things SDNY. Exactly. I, I am aware of that. Well, luckily I won <laughs> even without that. But um, okay, so let's go back to your book. And you talk about three fundamental traits that were yeah. an explanation for why Barr failed as attorney general. And while I don't think he had to have been a prosecutor to have understood how wrong these things were, um, I agree with these three traits that he exhibited them and that they doomed him to failure. Um, and those are, you said he was a liar, he was a political partisan, and he used the Department of Justice as a political tool to help Trump. And three, that he used his position as attorney general to advance his own legal philosophical uh, views, and I would say I, I would have added, and I'm glad you mentioned this, his religious and political views as well, and how society mm-hmm. ought to function in his own view, um, including putting the president above the law in his unitary executive theory. And um, I I think it's that's one of the most interesting things in the book, and I'd love for you to talk about some specific examples of these traits, you know. You can talk about um, things like Barr's initial summary, his four-page summary, two days after he got the report, and how false and misleading that was as an example of outright lies. But, you know, give me some examples that our audience can go away with, not just your conclusion. But so let's start with he was a liar and some examples. So I I thought long and hard about whether to come out and use the L word to call him a liar. I mean, Victor, you, you, you may not know this, but in the law and in media, that is a very dramatic thing to do to call someone a liar. And we often come up with softer ways to say that he was lack credibility or whatever. And 
I eventually just decided, look, I'm, I'm, I didn't write this book to be polite and to pull punches. And you don't have to just take it from me. You could take it from Robert Mueller, right? We all remember he wrote a letter to Bill Barr saying, you've mischaracterized my, my report. And from multiple federal judges who have virtually, if you go into Google and you, and you write liar synonym, virtually every word that will come up has been said on record about Bill Barr, held, found by federal judges about Bill Barr. Uh, disingenuous, lack credibility, lack candor, inconsistent with truth, you name it. And I just said, well, look, I don't wear, I don't wear a robe. I don't have to be polite. Um, when did he lie to us? The big one, the big one that we all remember is the Mueller report, Jill, as you said, where he essentially told us all the, the good for Donald Trump and held back all the bad for Donald Trump, which is so dishonest. And then do you remember what he did that's even more that compounded the dishonesty? He gave us his four pager that totally slanted it. And then he held the report back from all of us, public and Congress, for 27 days. And during that nearly full month, his four pager had the stage all to itself. And what happens, of course, we're human beings. That becomes the narrative that because I mean, talk, forget about first impressions. He had the first impression and he kept it for a month. And then he came up with basically this bogus explanation that he was, oh, we had to spend the time redacting. I mean, you can redact, you know, you have the whole DOJ at your fingertips. And remember, Bill Barr, uh, excuse me, Robert Mueller gave Bill Barr ready to go redacted summaries. And rather than put those out, Bill Barr just put out his own four-page spin, and Mueller and his team were furious, according to Andrew Weissman, who's written about it since, was part of the team, and to Mueller himself. So, But that's not the only lie Bill Barr told. That's probably the one pe most people remember. But, I mean, election fraud is another one. Um, Bill Barr did turn on Donald Trump at the, I would argue, after the end in December, once it was clear the election was over and Donald Trump had lost, and said there's no evidence of election fraud. What Bill Barr's leaving out of his little image rehab tour that he's on now, and I don't leave out of my book, I don't leave either, any of this out of my book, um, is that for six months prior to the election, Bill Barr was out there lying about election fraud. Oh, there's this huge risk foreign ballots, counterfeit ballots. We can't police it. Every time he said it on national radio, national TV, he said it in Congress. Whenever he was asked, well, what evidence do you have of that? He either said none, but it's obvious. In one case, when he interviewed with Wolf Blitzer on CNN, he, he gave this bogus case involving 1,700 ballot fraudulent ballots. It turned out it was not a DOJ case, but involved one fraudulent ballot and DOJ had to issue a correction the next day. So he lied to us about that. He lied about, remember when he fired the SDNY US attorney, Jeffrey Berman, and Bill Barr's public statement was Jeffrey Berman uh, will be stepping down. And Berman, a few hours later, issued a statement saying, no, I'm not. So he lied about that. He lied about things big and small. And I think that says a lot about his character. On the second major point, the injection of politics into um, into DOJ, I mean, look, basically every single decision Bill Barr made was in favor of Donald Trump. And at a certain point, I think it's fair to conclude he's starting with the conclusion and then backfilling the answer. But the most infamous examples are, of course, the Mueller report, where he twisted the law and the facts to save Donald Trump himself. Later on, Bill Barr interceded in unprecedented manner to rescue Michael Flynn and Roger Stone to try to help them out. And then he tried to tell us it's not political. Oh, these are just the cases that happened across my desk. I mean, come on. There, you do, you do 80,000 cases a year, literally, in DOJ. And the two that Bill Barr steps down and undercuts, publicly undercuts his own prosecutors who've already gotten appropriate approvals, happen to be two cronies of the president. We don't have to buy that. And then the third thing, the sort of extreme legal and religious beliefs, I mean, the legal beliefs really, 
he was he has a terrible record in the courts because he was constantly arguing that the president not only should have certain powers and privileges, but is entirely above the law, can't be subpoenaed, can't be investigated, can order others in the executive branch to defy congressional subpoenas. He got crushed in courts, but a lot of times he did the trick just by stringing things out and delaying things until after the election or so long that people couldn't even follow it anymore. And then finally, on the religious piece, you know, Bill Barr did pursue some culture warrior-like policies. I'll give you a couple examples. One is the death penalty. I mean, he went on a killing spree on his way out the door. He imposed the death penalty. Well, the death penalty had already been, been imposed, but they were all in sort of moratorium. The prior several administrations, Republican and Democrat, dating back to 2003, had declined to put anyone to death. And then Bill Barr had 13 people executed on his way out the door, including one on January 14th or just days before um, the Trump administration left. Um, and then the second thing is Bill Barr took a position in the Supreme Court, DOJ took a position against equal rights for LGBTQ people um, who sued and they won in the Supreme Court over Bill Barr's objection. But that's an old school, I think, sort of retrogressive position to take. So all of this stuff really impacted Bill Barr's performance in a tangible way. I mean, so you mentioned um, his his false claims about the election, and I wanted to ask you how dangerous, I mean, you mentioned in your book his interview by Wolf Blitzer in which mm -hmm. Barr said that there were several um, indictments involving mail-in ballot voter fraud in Texas. Um, I guess first, is there any truth to that, and how dangerous is that coming from the attorney general himself? Yeah, no, that interview that Bill Barr gave Wolf Blitzer was really remarkable for just how arrogant and untruthful Bill Barr was. I mean, he sat there and Wolf Blitzer asked him, how many, uh, how many cases has DOJ indicted involving voter fraud? And Barr goes, first of all, Barr answered, quote, and I quote, several that I know of. The answer, of course, he had zero. Um, he couldn't name them, but he had one. He had one. And Bill Barr said, well, we indicted a case out of Texas involving 1,700 fraudulent ballots. And I remember watching that and thinking, okay, wow, I didn't know about this. I haven't, somehow I haven't ever heard of this, but that's real evidence if they have that. Turns out the we, first of all, is not DOJ. The we was Texas state prosecutors. Not the major lie there, but a weird one. Why would you claim it was DOJ's case when it wasn't? The big lie there was 1,700 ballots. The actual Texas prosecutor said there was one, a single fraudulent ballot. And the next day, DOJ had to issue this humiliating walk back. And I don't know if you're, I wouldn't expect you to remember, but you know what they did? They didn't own up and take responsibility like the example I gave you earlier with me with Justice Sotomayor. They said, oh, we had some lower level staffers fall. He got it wrong. I mean, first of all, amazing how every single mistake Bill Barr made was always in Donald Trump's favor, always in favor of the narrative of the moment, every single time. I mean, we don't have to buy that, and I don't. Um, so they, they walked that back. And yeah, Victor, you make a great point. He did all this as attorney general. I mean, it's one thing. It's not a good thing for members of Congress, your Jim Jordans, your Josh Hawley's to claim election fraud, that kind of thing. But ultimately, they have, while they're powerful people, they don't have anywhere near the power um, and the gravitas that the attorney general carries. And for him to go on record with those kind of lies over and over again, I think did enormous damage in spreading the big lie in the first place. So beyond the, the lying part of his uh, qualities as attorney general, your second point was that um, 
he politicized the Department of Justice, yep. which to me is one of the most horrible things he did. Um, and, and I thought it was probably pretty predictable given his audition memo. That was enough to make yep. me think that he was going to uh, do exactly that as Attorney General. And um, what I'd like to explore, though, are some of the other examples of Barr using sure. DOJ as a political tool that you mentioned in Hatchet Man. Um, and let's, you know, maybe go through a couple of those. You already mentioned Michael Flynn and Roger Stone uh, as people he intervened with who were friends of the president. Um, but let me ask you about E. Jean Carroll and yeah. his decision to uh, use the Department of Justice to defend because this was within the scope of the president's job uh, or the Durham investigation or, well, let, let's start with those two. So I've been, I was very critical of Bill Barr and I've, I've been critical of Merrick Garland for taking the same position. But so the E.G. and Carroll case, of course, she sued the president for defamation after she accused the president, then president Donald Trump of sexual assault, rape. And the, Trump denied it and called her a liar and had some other grotesque things to say about her. The decision for DOJ then is, do we defend this public official, the president? Um, if what he did was in the course of his official duties, then DOJ defends you. And if not, then they don't. And the example I, I give in the book, as a prosecutor, you get sued sometimes by um, sometimes by defendants who think you wrongly prosecuted them or that kind of thing. Clearly, that's within the scope of your job as a prosecutor, so DOJ defends you. But if I were to go to a bar and get in a fight or hit someone with my car, that would not be in the scope of the job, and DOJ would not defend me. And so DOJ, under Bill Barr, made what I believed was an outrageous decision that Donald Trump's defa allegedly defamatory comments about E. Jean Carroll were somehow within the scope of his job as president. And I said, that's... for beyond it being offensive and sort of facially absurd, there is a line somewhere. Not everything, the pre even conceding that the president has the broadest job description of all, um, there has to be a line somewhere and this has to be over it. And I felt vindicated shortly thereafter when Judge Lewis Kaplan, a very sharp sort of no-nonsense judge in the SDNY, who I did trial in front of and other things, um, I, I won't say agreed with me, but came to the same conclusion as I did. He said, no. He said, not everything's in the scope of the president's job, and this is this is not in the scope. Garland then came along and agreed to res to sort of continue the appeal on, Bill, on Donald Trump's behalf. I think that was um, a major mistake by Merrick Garland. I think he missed an opportunity to make a clean break there from Bill Barr. Um, I thought Barr's decision was political. I think Merrick Garland's decision is political in the opposite way. I've been critical of Merrick Garland for, I think he is trying so hard to avoid anything that might cause a stir that he actually is playing politics in doing so. And, and at a certain point, you're not doing your job as a prosecutor if you're just constantly saying, what's going to ruffle the least possible feathers here? So I'm critical of both of them for that. So I want to follow up on that with a question about what do you think is going to happen? I haven't seen an announcement yet today uh, about whether they will continue to defend Mo Brooks on the same theory that he was acting in the scope of his job yeah. while inciting the January 6th riot. Uh, do you have any predictions on what Garland is going to decide <laughs> in handling that? Yeah. 
It's about 1.30 on Tuesday, so we've not seen this decision yet, but it's coming later today. Um, look, I think the clearly correct decision legally and just, just in terms of basic notions of common sense is that DOJ should not represent Mo Brooks for his comments, that they were well beyond the scope of the job. But if we look at Merrick Garland's prior decisions, I think it, it would not surprise me one bit if he decided we are going to represent Mo Brooks because the broader principle that federal officials are entitled to representation, but people keep saying that he's an institutionalist. He's trying to preserve that, that idea. But again, there is a line. Right. I mean, you, there are things that federal officials do not get protected for. And so I think if Merrick Garland's just sort of taking this blanket approach of I don't want to do anything that, that causes political ruckus, that gives the appearance that I'm sort of undoing something that the prior administration did, then, then he's not doing his job. So I guess, Jill, if I had to bet, I would bet that Merrick Garland will take up the representation of Mo Brooks. I don't feel... It's not much more than a 50-50 at this point, but, I, but if I had to guess, I would guess that way. I, I'm afraid I probably agree with you, and I think yeah. that although I have tried to explain his past decisions that I disagreed with as part of being an institutionalist and avoiding politics, I think this might be a step too far and might also be an indicia uh, or an indicator of what he might do in terms of defending Donald Trump for his role in the insurrection. It, and it's that be a would very be a similar calculation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a very similar. It appears to me that what Merrick Garland has done on these decisions is said, will this be perceived as a shot across the bow at the Trump administration and Bill Barr? If so, I will do the opposite. That is absolutely not how any attorney general should be making decisions. Agree. Definitely agree. I think Jennifer Rubin yesterday yeah. wrote this op-ed in I the Washington that. Post, and she basically said, you know, quite bluntly, you know, sedition shouldn't be in the scope of an elected official's duties. Um, but uh, one last point that you make in your yeah. book about Barr um, is that he used his position to advocate his own uh, beliefs and his legal views and promote popular right-wing legal organizations like um, the Federalist Society. And I'd like to ask you about that, maybe starting with um, something that you mentioned before, which is um, this unitary executive theory, which might sound a little unfamiliar. Yeah. to lawyers, uh, to non-lawyers. Um, you described there being this kind of outdated OLC memo that effectively insulates the president from being held accountable for wrongdoing. Um, and, and one could argue that Barr might have been trying to uphold OLC policy or um, kind of follow legal precedent. But how, how much do you think that had to do with Barr's own views on um, the powers of the presidency? Yeah, I think Bill Barr saw in Donald Trump a, a perfect vehicle or vessel to pursue sort of the extreme of the Federalist Society unitary executive theory. Now, let me, let me step back for a second here. The unitary executive theory is this idea in the law that, first of all, the executive branch should be superior to the other branches, congressional and judicial, and that the president himself is not just sort of the head of the executive branch, but he is the executive branch. And so everything and everybody in the executive branch, including DOJ, is merely carrying out his will. Um, that is a on the on the right side of the spectrum, but it's not to me beyond the the can. I mean, you'll see Victor Ifen when you go to law school someday um, that that's an accepted school of thought. Now, people, not not uniformly, but it's 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 a school of thought. The problem with Bill Barr is he pushed it to absurd lengths. He 
argued that the president can't be subpoenaed, can't be investigated, can order anybody else in the executive branch to ignore Congress when, when Congress serves a subpoena. And like I said, he'd lost an awful lot. I actually don't fault Bill Barr for the memo, um, the memo that says that DOJ should not indict a sitting president. That memo was drafted in 1973, probably as a result, if not probably, as a result of some of the work that Jill did. Um, and was then reviewed again in the late 90s when Bill Clinton was in trouble and was they came out the same way. And so Bill Barr had to abide by that memo. Could he have taken a look and said, we want to revisit this? Perhaps Merrick Garland could do, could do the same. I'm not entirely sure the memo's wrong. I know it's I know it was hard to watch Donald Trump get away with it all for four years, but there would be significant problems if we indicted and potentially incarcerated a sitting president, especially if Congress refused to impeach him or remove him on impeachment. So I don't know whether the, I think there's a fair debate to be had about whether the memo itself is right or wrong. I don't fault Barr for that. I fault him for trying to place the president above and beyond the law in many other ways. Well, I just want to follow up on what you just said, Ellie, which is, I think there's a difference between saying you the president is the executive branch and saying that the executive branch supersedes all other branches. And that's where, um, even if there is some validity, which I would challenge to the unitary executive theory, it goes way beyond it when you say, and you don't have to pay attention to congressional oversight or to decisions of the court. And I would also just like to point out that in 1973, I thought that the OLC memo was incorrect, that a sitting president could be indicted, and when there was enough evidence, should be indicted. Uh, But that's a whole separate discussion we can have some other time. Uh, Let's go back to your book, and you end it with talking about what DOJ needs to do to repair itself as an institution, to get people to trust it as a, a protector of justice, and to prevent abuses of power from occurring again. And I'd like to have you talk about some of the reforms that you've included in your book, because to me, saving the Department of Justice is so important. And I'd love to talk about that. Yeah. So in my in the book, I talk about how there's really two avenues that DOJ needs to go down in order to get back on its feet. One is formal policy change. And I'll get back to those in a moment. And the other is getting back to the unwritten laws, the, the, the unwritten rules, the prosecutor's code. So starting with formal change, I, I outline nine changes that I think can happen and should happen. Um, starting, for example, there is longstanding guidance within DOJ that very severely and strictly limits communications between DOJ employees and con- Congress uh, members or staff. There is, however, no such rule or was no such rule limiting communications between DOJ and the White House. Now, just a couple weeks ago, the White House actually adopted rules limiting that conduct, which is a good thing. And DOJ ought to uh, adopt similar limits formally. There have been some rules set out in letters and sort of informal guidance within DOJ and within the White House. But let's codify it. right? Let's be clear about it. There should be essentially no communication about specific prosecutions. And if there is, it needs to be reported and and dealt with and that kind of thing. So that's one. I think the special counsel regulations need to be revised um, to make clearer that special counsel needs to do what Robert Mueller did not do, which is even if you cannot indict the president, you need to say whether you believe the evidence supports an indictment for when he gets out of office. 
Um, Mueller, of course, ended up getting tied in knots over that, although arguably the regs already do sort of say that. They say that the special counsel should explain his prosecution or non-prosecution decisions. Um, Mueller chose not to do that, but I think we need to clarify that as well. I think we need an ethics overhaul. I don't know, to this day, I don't know, and nobody's ever explained how Bill Barr managed to stay on the Mueller investigation when he had already publicly prejudged it decisively. He said, it's fatally misconceived. You're out. I mean, in the book, I talk about a few cases I was recused off of because my father's former law partner once represented a witness in my case, in a civil case 12 years ago, that was, okay, you're out. If that's the case, how does Bill Barr stay on the Mueller case? And worse, ethics officials, career ethics officials at DOJ told him it was fine. So we need a serious, DOJ has to have a, a serious reckoning when it comes to ethics. And it, it felt to me, not felt to me, it, it, it was clear during Barr's tenure that ethics people were just telling him whatever he wanted to hear. The Office of Legal Counsel, OLC, we talked about, Jill, they need to get back to being some version of an impartial source of legal advice. This isn't new. OLC has always sort of leaned the president's ways and they've had their moments of infamy in the past, most of all, um, the torture memos under the Bush administration. But OLC needs a reset. They, they are supposed to be, I was always taught, OLC is these sort of non-political geniuses that give us opinions on the most vexing issues of constitutional law. Um, OLC has now gone too far off the rails to where I think they've lost credibility. They've issued absurd rulings, including many of them under bar, which just so happened to be exactly where Donald Trump was publicly advocating that they come out. So um, those are uh, those are a sampling of some of the formal reforms we need. But ultimately, I think DOJ just needs better people, people who understand the prosecutor's code, who are willing to fight to um, to preserve the integrity, the honesty, the independence of DOJ. And um, like I said, a lot it comes down to people who understand what DOJ is all about, and just people who are of better character. Um, and Bill Barr was really arrogant. It's one of the things that I think he got away with because. Unlike a Jim Jordan, unlike a Mo Brooks uh, who yells and screams and finger points and gets in the camera, Bill Barr's a soft-spoken guy, and he's an older guy, and he seems sort of like almost like a dean type person, a distinguished guy, um, but he's really quite arrogant, um, both in the ways that he handled his job and the ways we've talked about throughout this um, today's uh, program, the ways he lied to us, the way he's, he demeaned the the thousands of women and men who work at DOJ. He talked down at them. At the very end, he gave a, a wildly insulting speech about who do these people think, Jill, I'm sure you remember this, who do these people think they are? This isn't a nursery school where they all get a say. That That's a, right? I mean, he said outrageously arrogant things and he's really an arrogant, I, I won't even say he's an arrogant person. I will say he conducted himself in, in a remarkably arrogant way as attorney general. So we need an attorney general who has a bit of humility. Merrick Garland maybe has too much humility. I'd like to see a little more backbone out of him. Um, maybe back, maybe those aren't exact opposites of one another, but we just need better people who better understand the mission. So I want to just say that I think that in order to really understand all of the reforms you're suggesting and that are so necessary, people are going to have to read the book and see for themselves and that nothing is more important than getting it right and reforming the Department of Justice. So 
Thank you very much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Sorry for Brisby barking during your talking, but hopefully we can mute his sound. I, I can always talk through a dog barking because I have two kids in the house, so I can talk right over them talking to their friends or on the video games or whatever. So thank you for having me. It's wonderful to thank talk, talk uh, to both of you about this. You, this, is, this is sort of the perfect vehicle to discuss this book because I aimed it really, like I said, my two main audiences here are the, you know, were, were peop, young folks who were thinking about going into law. And also I did it a lot for, for uh, to a great extent for the DOJ veterans, for the people who've been through this, who understand. I've heard from so many DOJ alums who I've never, I mean, plenty of my colleagues from the SDNY, but people I've never met, 30-year prosecutor from North Carolina, somebody from Oregon, from Texas. Thank you for writing this book. So that means, gosh, I felt like Donald Trump there, sir, with tears in her <laughs> eyes. But, but I've heard from a lot of people who have, who have appreciated what the book uh, is about and stands for. So thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.